Welcome to the Ladies of Life site. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face through the lens of faith and freedom. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Lisa, and this week I'm joined by my co-host Claire and our guest, Dr. Michael New. Dr. New is a research associate of political science and social research at the Catholic University of America, as well as an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Additionally, he's a fellow with the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. New also has both a PhD in political science and a master's degree in statistics from Stanford University. He has served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard MIT Data Center and a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His articles have appeared in various peer reviewed journals, four of which have examined the impact of state level abortion legislation. In today's episode, we talk about a few recent polls on abortion from the Guttmacher Institute, a Marist poll, what the data says, their discrepancies, and also what they acknowledge about the success of the pro-life movement. We take a deep dive into pro-life legislation like the Hyde Amendment, the recent Texas heartbeat law, and even the upcoming case out of Mississippi that's about to be heard by the Supreme Court. Dr. New shares more on chemical abortions and what studies have shown about the harms of them. We talk about sidewalk counseling and more on the importance of staying the course in our pro-life efforts, regardless of if Roe v. Wade is overturned. This episode is jam-packed with data, studies, information, and even a few encouraging stories of lives saved on the sidewalk. I hope you'll listen to this one all the way through. It's really good, and I gleaned a lot from Dr. New, so I hope that you do as well. So without further ado, here is Dr. Michael New. Well, thank you so much, Dr. New, for joining us today. We're so excited to have you and hear your just insight on just the abortion numbers and kind of what's going on. So if you could just start off with sharing more about what's in this recent Guttmacher report that you've been talking about and really help us to understand that a little bit better. Recently released a report on unintended pregnancies and how those unintended pregnancies are resolved. And this report contains a couple bits of information I think that are interesting to pro-lifers. One bit of information is it shows pretty clearly, or gives some pretty good insights, I should say, as to why abortion rates are lower in conservative states than liberal states. And one thing that's interesting to know from this report is that unattended pregnancies tend to be pretty similar, you know, in terms of their rate uh, across the country. Conservative states only have a slightly lower unintended pregnancy rate than liberal states. Where you see big differences between conservative states and liberal states is how these unintended pregnancies are resolved. That 15 or so states that have voted Democrat in the past six presidential elections, about 45% of unintended pregnancies were aborted. In those 20 states that voted Republican during the past six presidential elections, only about 22 or 23% of unintended pregnancies were aborted. So uh, when women in conservative states find themselves uh, with an unintended pregnancy, they are much more likely to carry that pregnancy to term. And that really explains why conservative states like Texas and Alabama and Mississippi tend to have lower abortion rates than places like California and New York. Now, it's not really clear um, why exactly these unintended pregnancies are being carried to term, but I think we have some ideas. I mean, I think it's some combination of public sentiment. It's the fact that conservative states, there's more pro-life laws, 
And I also think that in conservative states, it's pretty clear there's more pregnancy help centers. I think all of that combines to make a, a real difference. Another thing about this report that's interesting is it gives some indication about why pro-lifers have made some impressive long-term progress in terms of getting the abortion rate down. Since 1980, uh, the U.S. abortion rate has fallen by 53%. That's a big decline. If the U.S. abortion rate had not declined at all since 1980, there'd be one million more abortions taking place every year. So pro-lifers have done good work getting those abortion numbers down. And what's important to know is that why the abortion numbers are falling. And what this Guttmacher report tells us, there's been a long-term uh, durable reduction nationally in the percentage of untended pregnancies that result in an abortion. During the 1980s uh, into the 1990s, over half of untended pregnancies were aborted. But starting around 2008 and into the current day, the percentage of unintended pregnancies that result in an abortion is in the low 40s. And anytime I get a chance to talk to a pro-life audience, I always mention a statistic. I think the fact that fewer and fewer unintended pregnancies are aborted really shows that pro-life efforts are effective. That if more and more women are choosing life, it's because of one of three things. It's either because pro-lifers are changing hearts and minds, and our educational efforts are succeeding, we're passing more and better pro-life laws, or we're helping more and more women through pregnancy help centers. So if more and more women are choosing life, that all flows back to the good work the pro-lifers are doing around the country. That's awesome. It's such a good testament, too. And I think that's encouraging to a lot of pro-lifers out there who have been doing the work for years and years and years and planting the seeds and helping and educating and doing everything. It's great, such a great reminder to them to see that big picture because it can often feel like their work is all for naught sometimes. So that is really reassuring. I think the numbers are showing it. One question that came to mind as you were talking about the numbers was you said since 1980, the, the, the numbers have significantly decreased. So what happened that at that point in time in the pro-life movement to help urge that along? Well, I think it's been a variety of things that have happened in the pro-life movement. 1980 was an important year for us because it was one of our most important victories since Roe v. Wade. In 1980, you had the Supreme Court decision, Harris v. McCrae. And that was a big win for the pro-life movement because that was when the Supreme Court found the Hyde Amendment was constitutional. And if your listeners aren't familiar with the Hyde Amendment, what the Hyde Amendment does is it uh, prevents the federal Medicaid program from covering or paying for elective abortions with taxpayer dollars. So when we got the Hyde Amendment upheld in 1980, that basically got the federal government out of the business of paying for abortions, elective abortions, through the Medicaid program with taxpayer dollars. And we know from plenty of research that when you quit paying for abortions with taxpayer dollars, abortion numbers go down. So I think in 1980, it all starts with the Hyde Amendment and the fact that it was upheld in Harris v. McCray. And just since that time, you've seen pro-lifers make gains in other ways. Uh, the Casey decision in 1992 was disappointing because the Supreme Court did not overturn Roe v. Wade, but they did uphold various parts of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act. So after Casey, we could do even more. That strengthened our ability to pass pro-life parental involvement laws. We could pass waiting periods. We could pass informed consent laws. So you know, we made progress you know, on the courts, even though we didn't overturn Roe v. Wade, Court decisions let pro-lifers do more to protect pre-born children. And in many states, we took advantage of that. I saw today there was a report uh, from Guttmacher that we passed over 100 state-level pro-life laws this year. There have been over 1,000 state-level pro-life laws passed since Roe v. Wade. So these court decisions have made it easier for us to pass more and more laws at the state level. Other things that have happened is that Republicans have done well, just in terms of our pro-lifers have done well, 
gaining influence in the Republican Party. When state legislatures flip from Democrat to Republican, it makes it much easier to pass these protective pro-life laws. That's why we're seeing a lot of good pro-life laws being passed. We've also done well changing hearts and minds. That if you look at polling data, Gallup, as recently as 1995, they found that only 33% of Americans identify as pro-life. Their most recent poll in June of 2017 found that 47% of Americans identify as pro-life. That's a gain of 14 percentage points. So we are winning hearts and minds, and we are, frankly, building more pregnancy help centers. The Heartbeat International publishes a book called The Worldwide Directory of Pregnancy Help. It lists every U.S. state and all the organizations in that state dedicated to helping pregnant women. They found that between 1988 and 2015, the number of organizations dedicated to uh, assisting pregnant women went up by 86 percent, almost doubled. So pregnant women can get more and better support now than they could, say, 30 years ago. Meanwhile, abortion clinics are closing. Between 1991 and 2017, the number of abortion facilities fell by about two-thirds. So pregnancy centers are opening, abortion clinics are closing. All this is good news for pro-lifers. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to kind of touch on the Supreme Court decisions, because we have a few of those going on right now and coming up. So could you weigh in on your thoughts on the Mississippi case and even this Texas-style heartbeat law of, of if other states want to put that into place in their state, what could we see there? So maybe first start with the Mississippi law and, and what you think could happen with that as far as the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I think the oral arguments are slated for early December. I encourage your listeners to come to D.C. Before the oral arguments, pro-life is going to gather. We have a lot of events planned. We need all the help we can get. So if you can free yourself, please come. We had a great weekend of events to kick off the fall term of the Supreme Court. But when the oral arguments start, you know, we can always use more help from area pro-lifers. So please come. And just some background about the case, that deals with the constitutionality of a Mississippi that would protect pre-born children after 15 weeks gestation. This law was signed by Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant in either 2017 or 2018. It's been kind of going through the appeals process. It was appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed to hold hearings on it. So this is obviously, I think, a very important case to pro-lifers. It's the first time since Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court has really considered an important question. They're considering whether or not you can legally protect pre-born children after a certain stage of gestation. Uh, Supreme Court has ruled on abortion many times, but they've never ruled on this question. They've ruled about taxpayer funding. They've ruled about regulations for abortion facilities. They've ruled about parental involvement laws. They've ruled about partial birth abortion bans. But they've never ruled yet on a gestational age limit. So uh, there's a chance, a good chance, this law will be upheld, and we hope and pray that it is. And if it is, that would be much easier for other states to go ahead and pass similar laws that would also protect preborn children after 15 weeks gestation. There's also a chance they could use this as an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's an outcome that pro-lifers everywhere are praying for. It would be wonderful if they would overturn Roe v. Wade, and states could really take serious, significant action to protect preborn children in their respective states. That's a possibility here. So again, these are you know very exciting times. You know, we could be on the brink of some very important policy changes that could restore legal protection to really thousands, uh, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of unborn children. So we need to pray and be active. But I think it's also important though, to you know, keep up our own efforts. You know, that I've told many friends that we'll hear the Supreme Court's decision probably sometime in June of 2022. That Saturday, whether the decision is good or bad, I can tell you exactly where I'll be. 
in front of the D.C. Planned Parenthood sidewalk constantly. That if we do get an outcome we want, abortion will still be legal in many states. We still need to step up our efforts in terms of education, service, legislation. So we certainly have our work cut out for us. But again, these cases are important. They could, again, restore pre legal protection to literally thousands of unborn children. I know there was a recent Marist poll that came out that purportedly shows the low level of support for Texas-style heartbeat bills. And when we talk about, you know, we need to really work, especially on the state level, on the legislative side, you know, can you explain kind of the discrepancies in that poll specifically and maybe give a little bit of background on what it was so that if people see that, they can know, you know, what to look for? Sure. That Marist poll, I think, is extremely misleading for several reasons. In fact, I would even go so far as to say Marist should not have even released, even released that poll. Uh, the results are so skewed that a reputable polling firm should not even put that poll in public circulation. And I'll explain why. I'm writing a piece about this. Hopefully, National Review Online will run it, that by the time this podcast is released, it should be out somewhere. But to give your readers some, some background, this poll reportedly only shows that about you know, 31, 32% of people would support a bill similar to the Texas heartbeat bill. Now, this poll, I think, is flawed for a couple of reasons. First, you just look at the results. Usually when you do a poll on abortion, there's big gaps between Republicans and Democrats, like 30, 40 percentage points as to whether or not they identify as pro-life or that they support a specific, a specific kind of pro-life law. This poll only shows like a three percentage point gap between Democrats and Republicans. That's very odd. Second thing that's very odd about this poll is the first poll I've seen on abortion, which shows that evangelical Christians or white evangelical Christians are less likely than other demographic groups to support a pro-life law. That this poll only found that 27% of evangelicals supported the bill like the Texas heartbeat law, as opposed to 32% of the country as a whole. So why do you get these really skewed results from this poll? Well, the reason why is the poll asked the question in a very odd way. They asked people, would you support a bill that would keep abortion legal up to six to eight weeks, but then protect pre-born children thereafter? And I think a lot of pro-life people said they would actually oppose such a law because they don't want a law necessarily that will keep abortion legal up to six to eight weeks gestation. You know, essentially that poll was worded in a confusing way. And some people who are pro-life who want all unborn children protected would oppose such a law. You know, they like a law that would protect all preborn children. So again, the way the question was worded was kind of odd. Again, it gave pro-lifers the impression that this law would explicitly legalize abortion throughout early stages of gestation, whereas the text in Texas, you know, abortion's already, you know, this law protects a certain group of unborn children after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So I thought that was a very poor question wording. And when you get results that are skewed demographically, like these results were, Frankly, this poll should have never been released. One more quick point to your listeners. This poll never used the word heartbeat. It mentioned cardiac activity. I think that was misleading. I think people are a lot more likely to support a pro-life law if it would stop beating heart than if it would, quote, unquote, stop cardiac activity. So why do you think they released that? Do you think it was just to add confusion to the conversation? Or, like, were they trying to just skew people's opinions on this heartbeat-style bill? I mean, why do you think they even released it at all? I'm kind of puzzled because things Marist actually does some good polling. I mean, Knights of Columbus you know, collaborate with Marist on a poll that's simply released around the March for Life every year, which does show that strong majorities of Americans support incremental pro-life laws like limits on taxpayer funding of abortion and parental involvement laws. So Marist does some work that's good. Keep in mind, I think this poll is also commissioned by National Public Radio 
and PB, sometimes mainstream media outlets combined with you know, polling outlets to do a poll. I don't know what influence that national public radio or public broadcasting system had for the wording of this poll, but it was possible that since you have a number of groups collaborating, that may have influenced mayor's decision to release it. I don't know for sure. But again, sometimes with the media or mainstream media groups commission polls, one should be pretty skeptical because oftentimes they have a real agenda they're trying to promote. I just want to say I really appreciate the articles that you've, you've written debunking some of these polls. I've been reading a lot of them. And we're going to link some of them in our show notes because I think they're so interesting and so important. And you pointed out over and over again that a lot of them are so misleading. I'd love to know which poll has made you the most annoyed. Oh, the poll makes me the most annoyed. This mayor's poll is up there. I mean, just because when you see the results that are skewed, you know, demographically, again, a reputable polling firm, if they see polls that are just really inconsistent with other polls, they should look at the question and say, you know what, we just asked a bad question. We'll redo the poll with a better question that actually is informative. I would say a lot of the polls on Roe v. Wade make me very upset and disappoint me because I think that the polls on Roe v. Wade with only maybe a couple exceptions really do not provide any useful information about what Americans think about abortion. There are many polls out there which claim that 60%, sometimes up to 70% of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Well, the problem with almost all of these polls is twofold. First off, most of these polls don't really explain what Roe v. Wade did. Roe v. Wade, by and large, legalized abortion in all 50 states throughout all nine months of pregnancy. That is a policy outcome that very few Americans, or a relatively small percentage of Americans share. That's one problem. The second problem with these polls is they don't make clear what happens if Roe v. Wade's reversed. If Roe v. Wade's overturned, abortion isn't banned. What simply happens is that the issues turn to the states, and state legislatures and governors will get to decide abortion policy for their respective states. So the endless parade of polls you see on Roe v. Wade, again, I think just confuse and mislead people. They don't provide good information about what Americans actually think about abortion. I don't think it's talked about enough at all what Roe v. Wade actually did and what will happen if it get overturned. Can I just go back really quick to the Hyde Amendment? Because you had tweeted something um, recently because it was the 45th anniversary of the Hyde Amendment. You said that all House Democrats voted for a budget that did not include Hyde. What can we expect from that and what will happen to Hyde? You know, the Hyde Amendment, just to you know, review, is basically a rider that's added to the annual bill that funds the Department of Health and Human Services. It states that you know, Department of Health and Human Services cannot use taxpayer dollars to fund elective abortion through Medicaid. The federal taxpayer dollars, again, can't be used to pay for abortions through the Medicaid program. And there used to be a lot of bipartisan support for the Hyde Amendment. I think around 107 House Democrats voted for the first Hyde Amendment uh, that was passed in 1976. The Hyde Amendment was included in every budget that President Obama submitted to Congress. It was included in seven of the eight budgets that President Clinton submitted to Congress. So this is a piece of legislation that historically has enjoyed quite a lot of bipartisan support. Unfortunately, the Democrats have really moved to the left on sanctity of life issues, partly because I think an older generation of Democrats that was more conservative has been passed away and been replaced by a younger generation that's a lot more secular and a lot more liberal. I also think the fact that Democrats get a lot of campaign donations from groups like NARAL and Planned Parenthood also affects the decisions they make on these issues. So you have a Democratic Party that's, you know, on social issues, a lot more liberal and a lot more supportive of legal abortion. So they went ahead and they passed, you know, again, they have a majority in the House 
and they went ahead and passed an appropriations bill uh, that did not include the Hyde Amendment. So if this bill was signed to law, that does mean that for the first time since, you know, 1980, when the Hyde Amendment was upheld by the Supreme Court, federal taxpayer dollars would be used to pay for elective abortions. Now, thankfully, it's not over. The Senate still has to handle or pass an appropriations bill. And we have a better chance to win in the Senate. That even though the Democrats have 50 senators, Joe, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, he has stated pretty consistently that he supports the Hyde Amendment. He represents a conservative state, and West Virginia is pro-life. Most of his constituents support the Hyde Amendment. So he's made it pretty clear that he wants the Hyde Amendment in the final appropriations bill that goes to President Biden. So obviously, you know, our work is, you know, not yet done. The final bill has not yet been passed. But again, it's something that pro-lifers need to be aware of. And we need to, again, you know, keep up our pressure on, you know, Senator Manchin and other Democrats, too, that there's other Democrats who may be persuadable. Bob Casey, Pennsylvania, Usually doesn't vote the way we'd like him to, but could be persuadable on this. I think Tim Kaine of Virginia sometimes has given some indication he may oppose taxpayer funding of abortion in some cases. So, again, we want to make sure that our taxpayer dollars don't pay for abortion. We know if our taxpayer dollars do pay for abortion, there'll be more abortions. I would estimate the high amendment savings about 60,000 lives every year. And again, we need to make sure that our conscience rights are protected as well. Thank you so much. I don't think I've ever heard anyone explain Hyde so perfectly well. I, I just want to say that I really appreciate the fact that you're teaching so many people about things that are happening, especially in D.C. You're a great writer, great educator. But I think one of the things that you do also is sidewalk counseling. Um, I, I'd love for you to talk about the importance of that, because, yes, you know, all these things are really important. Also, the supporting your government officials and all that. But. I think there's also something to sidewalk counseling that I think some people have the talent of. I've never done it because I'm so scared, but I love that you're out there doing it. Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure I have the talent for it either, but it's what God has called me to do. It's interesting. I was involved in the pro-life movement process my sophomore year in college, you know, which would have been around 1994. You know, I was aware of kind of street-level activism in front of abortion clinics, but was really not of interest to me until around 2006. And I read a book called Wrath of Angels. It's kind of the history of street-level activism in the pro-life movement. It details Operation Rescue, even details some things that went on before Operation Rescue and some of the aftermath after Operation Rescue kind of quit being involved in some of the direct street-level activism that they were engaged in. And to be honest, the book is not very good. It's not very sympathetic to our side, but it got me thinking. And, you know, if I really think, you know, abortion is as wrong as it's as evil as it is. This is not a fight I can just simply do from behind a desk. I really felt called to be out there and be in front of the clinics trying to offer alternatives to women. And I'll be honest, I, when I first felt called to do this, I was scared. I was a professor at the University of Alabama, and I didn't really know what to do. Do I just show up in front of my clinic and, you know, do my best? You know, I was afraid, you know, what if my dean sees me? You know, what if I run to a student of mine or a colleague of mine? What if someone files a complaint against me? But after praying about it, it took a while. But after I prayed about it, I thought, you know what, Michael, if God's calling you to do this, he will take care of you. And interestingly, I was in front of that awful abortion clinic in Tuscaloosa, and I never once saw a student of mine. I never once, you know, ran into, you know, a supervisor who, you know, reprimanded me. In fact, a colleague did drive by and complimented me. One of my colleagues was not conservative, but was pro-life. And he was impressed that 
pro-life people were out there trying to offer some alternatives to women seeking abortion. So depending on where I've been, you know, sidewalk consult sometimes more often, sometimes less often. I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2018 to start this new position at the Catholic University of America. And D.C., I think, for a long time, always had a pretty solid sidewalk housing scene. The Planned Parenthood used to be on the corner of 16th and L. And when I'd come over the summer to run internship programs, I'd remember quite often a lot of people, 10, 20, even 30 people outside the clinic praying and sidewalk counseling. So after settling in, you know, about a month later, I run some errands one Saturday morning. I get done early. I have a little bit of time left. And I thought to myself, you know what, Michael? Well, you go to the D.C. Planned Parenthood. You can pray, help out whatever pro-lifers are there. I show up. I was very surprised. We only had two pro-life people standing in front of this Planned Parenthood mega clinic. And I'm like, where'd everybody go? I mean, I thought we'd have a bunch of people out here. And, you know, they moved the location of the Planned Parenthood. And some folks didn't like the new location. Some people moved away. Some people just were not showing up due to circumstantial reasons. And I thought, you know what? We just need more people out here. The two people who come, God bless them, but we just need more people. So I will show up at this Planned Parenthood every Saturday by 9 a.m. So I showed up. I would announce on social media that I was there. I contacted some friends. Somebody sent me a mailing list. I emailed out the list saying, you know, we people sidewalk counseling, please join us. Some people told me to get lost or some people told me just they weren't interested, but some people stay on the mailing list. And, you know, the world doesn't exactly bang down my door. You know, it's not always fun, pleasant work. You don't always see positive things happening in front of you, but we have built the ministry. More and more people do come and spend some time in front of the Planned Parenthood and pray. Good things happen when people come to abortion facilities. You know, as Father Frank Pavone says, spend some time in front of these clinics and lives will be changed by your presence. He's absolutely right. So the ministry has gotten better since uh, I started coming. Uh, we just had a kickoff rally for the DC 40 Days for Life campaign on Monday. Catherine Glenn Foster, the president and CEO of American Society for Life spoke. We had about 30 people who came. So we are getting more people out there. And it's a real blessing to be part of this. That you know, I always wish we had more people. I wish we could do more. I wish we had a little bit more coverage. But we are making a real difference out there. So it's been a blessing. Now, what's some of the biggest like challenge when you're out there on the sidewalk? Is it just the lack of people, or is it, you know, a lot of Planned Parents have made it harder to engage, you know, because of different laws and restrictions of, you know, how far you can be from the clinic and all of that. So. What's maybe some of the biggest challenges, but also some of the greatest, you know, awesome success stories maybe that you've had? You know, a lot of times we're in an area that's just not sympathetic to our point of view. We don't get much support from passersby. You know, people do come by and make snarky comments. And, you know, you know, we just try to ignore it. And we smile. We tell them, you know, God bless you. Have a good day. You know, once in a while, people get angry and start yelling at us, and you know, we just do our best to try to defuse situation. The clinic escorts can be challenging to deal with at times. You know, they're trying to thwart us. They don't even want to let, give, let us give, you know, information about terms to women as they come into the clinic. So they make our lives a, a bit more challenging. But we just try to be a good prayerful presence, and we just try to remember that, you know, God's in charge and that, you know, we just need to do our part, be prayerful, provide the alternative. And, you know, good things, you know, often do happen. And, you know, it's interesting. Usually when uh, something positive happens outside of the clinic, a lot of times it's, it's teamwork, that it's, you know, more than one person who kind of notices something or does something. So I'll tell you one story. There's a woman named Joan McKee who comes, and she usually stands across the street and prays in front of the clinic and does not have much interaction with people coming in or out. So one day she's standing across from the clinic. It was getting kind of late. It was, you know, close to the time we're wrapping up, and a car pulls up. And they see her, and they pull over, 
and they ask her for instructions about parking. And she starts up a conversation with them. But one thing about Joan is she usually doesn't carry literature with her. So I, she's, I see that she's a conversation started. So I run across the street, and there's a woman sitting in the car. And the woman tells me, I already have five kids. And I said, I bet the sixth will be just as much fun as the first five. And she starts laughing. And I thought that was a good sign. She took the literature. And then there's a nun who comes and prays with us. She comes right across the street. And the nun sees a picture of the Virgin Mary in the car. It's just talking about Mary. So she has literature. We're talking about Mary. Uh, there's somebody talking to the driver. I don't know who. But you know, we got a few minutes talking to this woman. The car drove away. I'm pretty sure they ever came back. We stayed probably about an hour afterwards. We didn't see them again. We think that was the same. So someone praying outside the clinic across the street made a real difference that day. You know, there's another time I was there with a friend of mine. And uh, I was sidewalk counseling. And my friend noticed, hey, Michael, just around the corner, there's a woman in the car, like, crying her eyes out. Oh, that's not good. So I go around the corner, and it looks like there's a lady was in an Uber, and she's sobbing. And she did take the literature, and, but didn't want to talk. So I just went back to the clinic, prayed. She got out of the car, started walking to the clinic. And I said, look, you don't want to be here today. Let's help you. But a clinic escort shows up and whisks her to the clinic. And that was frustrating. And we prayed. And then uh, all of a sudden, the door opens and someone comes running out. I kind of missed it. And my friend goes, Michael, was that girl? She just ran out of the clinic. So I basically chased her down the street saying, you know, hey, we can help you. And she talked to us for a few minutes. She took some literature from us. And she texted me probably a little more than a year ago. I just gave birth. So a lot of times it's uh, teamwork that makes a real difference in front of the clinic. That sometimes uh, more eyes and ears are good. Sometimes our friends notice things that we sometimes miss. And when we get a save, it's because uh, a few people did something good, not just one person. That is like such an encouraging story. And I think it's a testament to the fact that the work that you're doing on the sidewalk, the prayers that people are praying like it is making an impact. And I think that we've talked about the numbers are showing that from conversations and from the work that pregnancy centers are doing. But it is so encouraging to see and hear different stories like this of how, you know, your decision to step out in faith, even when you weren't sure if this is something that was for you, but lives have been saved because of it and because of your faithfulness. So, you know, for all of our listeners who do sidewalk counseling or are considering it, you know, I want to thank you all for that work because it is so important. And I want to kind of step back into, you know, you've you've mentioned your you know involvement as a professor at universities, um, and it begs the question of like what, how how can this be talked about better? The abortion issue and the statistics, like at the university level, like what can be done? I know there's organizations in the pro life movement that help educate and equip students at the high school and university level. But what's your take on that? Yeah, we always just need, you know, more and better information. You know, that one thing that kind of just frustrates me, and I'm happy to keep writing about abortion trends, but the decline of the abortion rate is a public policy success story that has just gone completely unnoticed by much of the mainstream media. That aside from a handful of analysts with a real interest in this issue, this goes kind of unreported. Usually when there's a big public policy success story, whether that success story is the fall of communism, whether it's something like the polio vaccine, whether it's like declining crime rates in New York City, even the decline of the teen pregnancy rate has got some attention from the mainstream media, interestingly. But we've got the abortion rate down by 53% since 1980. And as I said before, if the abortion rate were still what it was in 1980, there'd be a million more abortions every year. So pro-life efforts, in my opinion, are saving close to a million lives every year, and it gets almost no coverage from the mainstream media. It isn't commonly known. 
you know, most people just kind of, when they see abortion, they see a stalemate. You know, abortion was legalized in 1973, and not much has happened since then. Well, that's wrong. You know, the abortion numbers have fallen, and much of the decline is because of the good work of pro-lifers. So I wish the declining abortion numbers just got more attention. I'm glad to write about this. You know, I write for popular audiences. You know, I try to write for academic audiences. You know, I really kind of wish we had more pro-life academics out there, that this isn't for everybody. I'll be the first to admit that. But being on a college campus, you can do a lot of good. You can really mentor and educate a great group of young people. You know, do your own writing and research that, you know, helps advance this issue in different ways. So again, I just think that, you know, we need more faculty and, you know, I kind of wish that, you know, these good abortion trends, the declining numbers just frankly got more attention. Absolutely. And I want to also dive into one more thing specifically to an opportunity. So we've talked a lot about how there's been a lot of success from the pro-life movement and legislative pieces, but I want to talk about one aspect that is kind of burning in my mind that you know, you recently tweeted, I think it was yesterday, that the Ohio Department of Health reported that in 2020, the number of abortions have increased by 3%. But an important reason for this increase was because chemical abortions went up um, by 26%. So can you talk on that piece of chemical abortions? Because we know that's an avenue that the kind of abortion industry and Planned Parents are trying to push. Let's talk about that a little bit more, especially as we talk about legislation is being passed to prevent, you know, abortions past 15 weeks or whatever. But chemical abortions typically happen before that point. Even though a lot of trends are positive for for pro-lifers, one important point of concern that we all need to be aware of is there's been a real increased number of chemical abortions. About 20 years ago, Chemical abortions are about 5% of all abortions, maybe even less. Right now, they're close to about 40% of all abortions. And, you know, we've seen data from a number of states indicating that after many, many years of decline, abortion numbers are rising, not by a lot, but by a little bit. And a big reason why in many of these cases is because there's been a real increase in the number of chemical abortions. And there's been a variety of reasons for that. The FDA, I think, a few years ago, approved allowing chemical abortions to be taken later in pregnancy. So that's been a problem. Another problem is that as, you know, abortion facilities have closed, many supporters of legal abortion are turning to chemical abortions as a way to make abortion, quote unquote, more available to women. During the pandemic, the abortion industry has been very opportunistic. You know, they've wanted to waive some of the in-person requirements to obtain chemical abortion drugs. So right now it is possible for women to obtain chemical abortions without an in-person medical examination. And I think this is a terrible idea for a variety of reasons. We know from the research that chemical abortions are risky. We know from multiple studies that are well done that they have four times the complication rate of surgical abortions. And allowing these abortions to take place without an in-person medical examination will only increase these health risks. First off, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, and obtains a chemical abortion, that could be fatal. If a woman is later in gestation than she realizes and she takes a chemical abortion pill, that could have some very negative health consequences as well. So we just need to educate people. Uh, Live Action has a series of good videos about chemical abortions and their impact and their health risks. I think another thing we need to be aware of is that with chemical abortions, you know, women will actually get to see the remains of their unborn children psychologically, that can be very damaging for many women. So I think those people who work in uh, abortion healing ministry, which I think is very important, need to be aware of that. So this is something pro-lifers need to be aware of. 
but I think we need to fight this through education and legislation. You know, we need to push back. I think at the very least, if women are obtaining these dangerous chemical abortion drugs, they need to do so with a full in-person medical. Then again, if they're allowed to obtain these drugs through the mail, we have good data showing there can be some very negative health consequences that result from that. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, the different complications, and one of them could be they're bleeding out at home. I mean, there's just so many risk factors with it. But especially in 2020, where a lot of telehealth appointments became a thing, it's clear that that was a big push um, from the left, for sure. But I do think it's an opportunity, for sure, for pro-lifers to step up their education and legislative efforts, because this is a big side of it, too. So before we get close to closing here, let's talk a little bit more about the Mississippi case. So could you share some of, you know, you had alluded to a lot of the events and things that are coming up in December. So can you share more about what's coming up, what people can tune into and be a part of? I'll be perfectly honest. I don't think the plans are 100% set just yet, but the oral arguments are stated, slated for, you know, early December. I think that pro-lifers are going to be very active. I think we're going to have some demonstrations at the Supreme Court. I think we're going to have, you know, definitely several rallies. I don't think the plans are set up just yet, but I think they'll be announced in the very near future. Obviously, we'll communicate with LifeSite News and other Catholic and Christian uh, media outlets, because, again, if you have time on your hands, I think coming to D.C. for these events uh, would be an excellent idea. The other side will be out in full force. I think we need to make sure that pro-lifers' voices are heard and, you know, we're able to come and, you know, represent the pro-life side in a good, uh, holy way and a good, mature way and, you know, show people that we really care about both women and unborn children, that we do love them both. So, again, I don't have a full list of events just yet, but I think you'll hear some announcements in the very near future. And, again, there's obviously, you know, quite a lot to do. looks like the March for Life is going to be back in person in January I think that's always a great event. I think that's the one weekend when the pro-life movement really does get uh, some national attention, uh, which we deserve. Uh, so obviously, I encourage all your listeners to, to come to that. You know, these are exciting times. They're busy times. I just want to motive, encourage everyone to keep up the rest that whether you know you feel called to work in education, service, you know, whether you're able to support pro-life ministries financially, I just want to encourage everyone to continue their efforts. You know, sometimes progress doesn't come as fast as you would like, but we are making progress. And I just want to assure everybody that we say the victory will someday be ours. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. New, and for your insight and um, perspective. I think this, your expertise just gives such a great overview, I think, for all of our listeners on kind of what's going on, what's been going on, and that a lot of the pro-life efforts, the successes um, that we're seeing now, it's because of that and the day-to-day efforts that can seem like they're not sure if they're having any fruit or not. It's clear we see that they are. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing and weighing in because this discussion is going on around social media. It's going around, like you've said, even mainstream media is talking about it a little bit. But I think it's it's a huge topic of conversation right now, and a lot of people aren't sure how to talk about it. So thank you for your perspective and expertise. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. I'm a big fan of LifeSite, and you folks do great work covering safety of life issues. Uh, if any of your listeners are interested in my writing or research, the best thing they can do is follow me on at Michael underscore J underscore new. That's at Michael underscore J underscore new. People can also reach out to me on Twitter with questions. If I can be of help to anybody in their pro-life work, I'm happy to do so. Thank you. And is there a website they can find your work on as well, or you mostly just link it on Twitter? Most of what I do is just linked on Twitter. That's the best way to do so. You could also uh, reach out to me on Facebook. I do post my articles there, but Twitter is probably the best way to follow what I do and what I write. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We so appreciate all that you do and all of your time today. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Thank you all for listening today. Just a reminder that we have linked many of the resources and studies that Dr. New discussed in the show notes. So if you want more information on those, you can find them there. You can also email us at ladies at lifesightnews.com if you have any questions at all. I hope you all have a great week and we'll see you all next time.